You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of missing 24-year-old Daniel Robinson out of Buckeye, Arizona. On the morning of Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021, he left his job site in the desert and hasn't been located since. At the heart of the search for Daniel is his father, David Robinson. Now, the Buckeye Police Department has shared some pretty interesting theories with David as to what they think might have happened to Daniel including the idea that he could have just decided to leave his life to join a monastery and become a monk. Daniel's family has basically begged the Buckeye Police Department to take this case more seriously, but that doesn't appear to be happening. Now, the week that this episode is being released is the same week as Veterans Day here in the United States. Daniel Robinson is not a veteran, but his father David is an army vet, having served two tours in Afghanistan. It breaks my heart to see him have to go through this. And honestly, some of the answers the police are giving David and his family just feel wrong. We, of course, will get into the details of Daniel's case in a minute. But as you guys know, I was born and raised in Arizona. Usually when someone is lost in the desert, typically hikers, resources are deployed almost immediately. Getting lost in the desert in the middle of summer is no joke temperatures can easily get into the 110s. And most things in the desert are literally designed to kill you. Cactus, scorpions, snakes, spiders, the sun beaming down on you with almost no shade. It's not a friendly environment. So why did the police wait days before conducting a formal search for Daniel Robinson after he was reported missing? Let's talk about it. 
This is the case of Daniel Robinson. Daniel Cornelius Robinson was born on January 14, 1997, to his parents David Robinson and Melissa Edmonds. Daniel does have an older brother, two older twin sisters, and a younger sister. His siblings haven't been super involved in the media coverage, so out of respect for their privacy, I won't give their names. There isn't a ton out there about Daniel's early childhood, but we do know that he grew up in South Carolina and always tried to outperform his siblings. Now, Daniel was actually born without his right hand, but according to his father, he never let that slow him down. Here is David to tell us a little bit more about what Daniel is like. Uh, Daniel, he's a he's a, a very outspoken um, guy um, from uh, from his childhood. Uh, Daniel, he's uh, he's 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 always challenged everything. He he uh, uh, challenges his siblings. Um, he want to outdo them academically. Um, you know, everybody know that Daniel's been born without a right hand. Uh, he never let that stop him. Um, he done everything from uh, learning how to play a French horn. Uh, he learned how to uh, uh, play the trombone. Uh, when he got into college, he, uh, he, he sought out to be um, a geologist, and he, he, he uh, uh, pursued his dreams, and he accomplished those, those goals, uh, graduated with honors. Um, he also is a, a friendly guy. He, had, he always had friends. Um, um, the College of Charleston down there, I've seen so many of his friends um, that love him. Uh, Daniel's a guy that loved to travel. Um, he... He uh, spent times with his friend on traveling. He's uh, loved nature. He liked to do hiking. Once he got out here to Phoenix, um, he liked to hike. He liked to um, travel, like I say, um, see nature. Um, and he loved his, his, uh, his uh, career uh, as a geologist. He liked to collect his rocks. He has a rock collection. But most of all about Daniel, he's a person that liked to bring people together. And even in this moment when he's uh, not here with us, uh, he's bringing everyone together right now. So um, that's the type of person that Daniel is. Like David mentioned, Daniel graduated with honors from the College of Charleston in South Carolina in 2019. His major was archaeology. Right after graduation, Daniel was offered a job as a field geologist by a company called Matrix New World in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, one of Daniel's sisters lives in the Phoenix area, and according to his father, Daniel took a class in Flagstaff, Arizona. So it seems like that's how he made this jump from South Carolina to Arizona. Daniel would eventually settle in Tempe, Arizona, just south of Phoenix. It seems that Daniel did just fine adjusting after this move. He made a few friends, and he excelled at his job. He even worked for Instacart on the side, making deliveries for extra income. David says that Daniel was always excited about some new rock formation or a hike he went on. It's also important to note that Daniel made plans for his family to visit him in July 2021, but he would go missing just a few weeks before those plans were realized. Now, Daniel wasn't just a geologist. Apparently, he was a hydrogeologist. So a lot of what he did for his job was meeting with representatives from companies who wanted to drill wells. That's exactly what he was doing on the morning of June 23rd, 2021. Daniel's workday began around 7 a.m. He stopped at a Shell gas station and then went to his first work site on Verado Way, south of the I-10 freeway. There isn't a ton of detail about what happens at this first work site. From the police report, it looks like he was just there to take a few photos. According to the information recovered from Daniel's vehicle, he leaves this work site and drives about 20 miles to an unknown location. 
After this, Daniel drives to a second job site near Sun Valley Parkway and Cactus Road in Buckeye, arriving right around 9 a.m. Now, I have seen some discrepancy here. Some people say 9 a.m., 9.07 a.m., 9.30 a.m., so just take that with a grain of salt. Looking at Google Maps, you can see that this is a pretty desolate patch of desert near the White Tank Mountains in the West Valley. He's not hours away from civilization, but there isn't really anything around for a few miles. Here, Daniel meets with a man named Ken, who works for the company Weber. This is the first time the two men had ever met. Ken told the Independent, quote, He was just looking off into the desert. He had a very, very distant look in his eyes. Whenever he'd turn around again, I would look at him and look into his eyes. The first thing I thought was maybe it was drugs or something, but his pupils were not dilated. End quote. According to Ken, Daniel also made statements to him asking if he wanted to go home, stating that it looked like it was going to rain. As Ken pulled out his phone to check the weather, this is now 15 minutes into their shift. Daniel leaves the job site. Ken stated, quote, He just turned around and walked back to his Jeep, and I just assumed he was going to get something out of his vehicle. And he opened the door, got in, sat down, put on his seatbelt, then he looked at me and just waved at me and backed up and took off. End quote. Ken told the police that Daniel left using the same dirt road they'd used to arrive. He explained that if Daniel kept going south on that road, he would hit an intersection where he could either go west or east. East goes back to town, and west goes further into the desert. At some point, Ken calls his boss to make him aware of the situation. Ken does continue working until about 3 p.m., when he was told that Daniel wasn't responding to texts or calls from his family. At this time, he stops working and drives south down that dirt road, and despite there having been some rain, he sees some fresh tire tracks going west. Ken stated, quote, When I saw that, my heart sank, because it just told me that he wasn't going home. Something was really not right. End quote. Ken told the police that he drove around the desert for a bit. He tries to find some high ground to look for Daniel, but he ultimately doesn't see him or his Jeep anywhere. Now, while all of this was happening, one of Daniel's co-workers, who also sounds like he was just a very good friend to him, ends up driving to his sister's apartment to look for Daniel. That's when they all realize something is seriously wrong. Daniel's sister and this friend make separate trips to his apartment, but there's no answer, and his blue Jeep renegade isn't there either. Daniel's father, David Robinson, is made aware of the situation around 7 p.m., this is when he calls the Tempe Police Department to report Daniel missing. However, the Tempe Police tell David he needs to call the Buckeye Police, since that's where Daniel was last seen. When David gets in contact with the Buckeye Police Department, they say he needs to wait until the 12-hour mark before they will take a missing persons report. So, David waits a few hours, and the Buckeye Police Department finally takes the report. According to the police report, two officers drive around looking for Daniel that night, and he is entered into the NCIC as a missing person. But David Robinson knows immediately in his gut that something is just wrong. So he packs up his car and begins the 1,800-mile drive from South Carolina to Arizona to help find his son. On the night of the 23rd and into the next day, Daniel's family continues to try to call his phone. It rings and rings until the calls eventually start going straight to voicemail. 
This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. There would be no official search for Daniel until two to three days after he went missing. Here is David explaining what happened in those first few hours and days before that search. Well, um, you know, they, they'll help her for the first day. Um, they took the report. Uh, first, they told me I had to wait 12 hours, which is I was three hours off. I called back after the three hours. Um, they took my report and they allowed, um, they also started asking questions around the job, um, you know, to try to locate them that way. Uh, I think one of the officer crews went out and did a uh, drive through of the street area, not in the desert. Um, I requested them to go out to look for my son. Uh, they told me, of course, he's a grown man. So, um, and it was at night also, so they couldn't go out. Um, the next morning, I asked them the same question. Hey, can y'all please go out there and look for my son? Um, the officer crew told me that they were going to um, go out there, but then he called me back an hour or so late and say it's been denied from the higher ups because he's a grown man and um, um, he has the right to leave if he want to. Um, from that point, I have Auntie and uh, Philly who called, and I don't know what she said to them, but hey, she, she can't call me back and say, hey, they're going to send the firebird out from uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And that was the first search. But by that time, um, as soon as they told me the first time they were going out for my son, I was in my car already heading to Phoenix. Uh, by the time I got to Phoenix, that's when they was out on the 26th. I was able to find a mention of this helicopter incident in the report. Like David mentioned, the first request for a helicopter to search the area was declined. No reason is given. It just says the officer will continue looking into the situation. I want to mention here that Ken's statement about his belief that Daniel drove into the desert and not back to civilization was taken by the Buckeye Police Department on June 24th, just the day after Daniel went missing. This concerned Ken enough to go search the desert for Daniel immediately that day. But why didn't the police feel the same sense of urgency? Being born and raised about an hour and a half from where Daniel went missing, the Buckeye Police Department not springing into action immediately is really strange to me. In my experience, when there is concern that someone could be lost or maybe hurt in the desert, especially in the middle of summer, Authorities are all over it immediately because of how dangerous these scenarios can be. They usually send ground and air teams to ensure the quickest recovery of these people. There is no pause to evaluate whether the person left on their own accord. There's just action because the desert is downright deadly. Now, according to the police report, we do know that two officers drove around that night to look for Daniel. On June 24th, the day that they declined the helicopter, 
An officer did drive around near the area of Daniel's worksite, but also didn't find anything. Now, ground searches are great, but we are talking about very rough desert terrain. Terrain that in the police report, they admit their vehicles can't fully get to. So why was this helicopter denied? I honestly don't know if we will ever get that answer. On June 25th, Daniel's aunt calls the Buckeye Police Department, expressing her concerns. It's at this point, according to the police report, that the police make another request for a helicopter, and this time it's granted. While the helicopter searches the area, two officers are on the ground searching as well. There is no mention of how long they searched in this report. But this is where I saw a discrepancy between some of David's interviews and the police report. David has stated in several interviews and in that clip you just heard that the official search for Daniel was on June 26th, three days after he went missing. According to the police report, they deployed that helicopter and a few ground units on June 25th. There's actually no mention of any extensive search during this time in the police report at all. On June 26th, Daniel's case was turned over to Detective L. Biffin from the Buckeye PD. In his report, he explicitly states that the search efforts happened before he took the case. Honestly, I have to imagine David Robinson knows a lot more than what's in that report or what I can find online. I'm not doubting his account. I just want to emphasize that whatever this search was doesn't appear to be very extensive. The Buckeye Police Department has told the media that that search lasted 12 hours. David says it was more like two I don't know where the truth lies because there's just nothing in that police report about these efforts. Either way, this new detective then goes over the information and re-interviews witnesses. On that same day, this detective calls Daniel's cell phone provider, who only provides the call log for the day after Daniel went missing after his phone was already off. Basically, it's just a bunch of missing incoming calls and messages. The detective asks for more records, stating that he believes Daniel may be in danger. They give him the records through June 22nd, the day before Daniel went missing, adding that they would need a warrant to obtain any additional information. Unfortunately, they weren't really able to ping the phone, and they weren't able to gather any crucial information that would lead them to Daniel. June 26th is also the day that David completes his drive from South Carolina to Arizona. When David speaks to this new detective, he mentions that he can't get any of Daniel's bank accounts to see if there's been any activity. Detective Biffin doesn't offer any assistance to obtain these records. Instead, he tells David that maybe he should hire a lawyer to try to get legal power of attorney over Daniel's affairs. Then they can go through the civil courts to gain access to his bank account. Eventually, Daniel's brother was able to access his bank account. And we do fill in some pieces of the timeline with that information like him stopping for gas on the morning he went missing. But more importantly, we learn that all bank activity has stopped since Daniel went missing. As I was building this timeline, I have to say, I began to grow frustrated for the Robinson family. I'm not an expert on police investigations, nor will I ever claim to be. But I will never understand the delay in this next action taken by police. It wasn't until July 6th. 13 days after Daniel was reported missing, that the police enter his apartment. Again, I'm not an expert, and we know that Daniel's Jeep wasn't parked at his apartment. But isn't a missing person's home one of the first places we should be looking? 
I mean, he could have crashed his Jeep, went to the road, and got an Uber for all we know. The family did try to gain entry to his apartment prior to this, but they were denied by management. The Tempe Police Department did perform a welfare check. They knocked on the door, but they didn't enter. It wasn't until this 13th day that detectives go to Daniel's apartment and ask management to let them in for a welfare check. And they have exactly zero issues getting in. As a side note here, the manager the police were dealing with mentions that Daniel's employer actually paid his rent that month. So I just wanted to give them some praise because that really is a very kind thing to do. But the detectives get into the apartment and there's not much to go off of. It looked clean for the most part, no valuables were missing, nothing appeared to have been packed, and there was no sign of a struggle. So they lock it back up and head out. After this, detectives do go put up flyers of Daniel at the entrances to the desert area where Daniel was last seen. This is in hope that the workers or landowners would keep an eye out for Daniel and his Jeep. They also go to the Buckeye Airport and urge the pilots to keep an eye out as well. On July 9th, we get a more serious aerial search for Daniel. David says he suggested the police request a civil air patrol be conducted by the Air Force. And the Air Force complies. They conduct four searches over six hours, and even send an additional plane the next day for follow-up. Unfortunately, nothing is found. However, Major Lane tells the Buckeye PD he would be happy to help again should they need further assistance. It was around this same time that David also began his own weekly searches for his son. But he says that as the days turned into weeks, he began to face the harsh possibilities of what could have happened to Daniel. Doing that search, um, I had to face a lot of things. Um, you know, the first first week or so, um, I, you know, I had, I was very hopeful that I would find him out there. You know, hopefully he wasn't injured. Um, maybe he just trapped somewhere and we could find him. But as the weeks start passing by, um, reality can kick in. You know, hey, I've been out there in the desert. Um, sometimes it get 118 degrees. Uh, then you start realizing, you know, um, how hard it can be out there. If you're out there trying to survive, you have wildlife out there. I've learned the mountain lions and things like that. The police and Daniel's family were checking nearby hospitals. They were calling jails. The police were trying to pull up surveillance, but they come up with pretty much nothing. However, as the police really begin to dig into these interviews with friends and family, they discover some things that lead them to believe no foul play was involved. This is a crucial part of Daniel's case that is still affecting it to this day. In my opinion, these interviews basically gave the police an excuse to not act with urgency in this case. In my opinion, a person lost in the desert doesn't need any justification to be looked for. The minimum barrier to entry there, from what I've seen, is person is lost in desert, this is very dangerous, we should go look. It's really as simple as that. Yet, for some reason, in Daniel's case, there was less urgency. If it weren't for his aunt pushing, that helicopter may have never been approved. If it weren't for David suggesting they request the Civil Air Patrol, I'm not sure that would have happened either. Honestly, I'm not sure a single aerial search for Daniel would have been conducted if his family wasn't pushing for it. I mean, maybe, but looking at those records, it doesn't look like it. Speaking of records, if you really want to dive into the statements I'm about to discuss, you can find all of that online. 
So the thing is, almost everyone the police spoke with has stated that Daniel was acting strange before he went missing. There is not a single mention of Daniel saying that he wanted to hurt himself. However, there are statements about Daniel just seeming down, off, and a little odd. He was less himself, less talkative, and withdrawn. It appears that this was in large part because of a failed romantic encounter. Like I mentioned, Daniel had a second job working for Instacart. One night, he delivered alcohol to a woman's house. This woman invited him in, they spent some time together, she sent him a podcast to listen to, and after this, Daniel tried to pursue the relationship. From the text log, the woman didn't really seem interested. Then, after leaving something at her home, Daniel shows up at her house unannounced, which made the woman feel uncomfortable. She does express this to Daniel, but he shows up again unannounced. So, on June 22nd, the day before Daniel went missing, she reminds him that it just isn't okay, and basically says she doesn't want to see him. Now, I want to stop right here and say I'm not placing any blame on this woman. She had every right to say and do everything she did. She felt uncomfortable, made that clear, and ended their conversations. I respect that 100%. I'm just saying this obviously made Daniel sad. He opened up to one of his good friends about how he wanted a girl he couldn't have. Daniel also began speaking about some new ideologies about negativity, miracles, the ego, things like that. This friend tells police that it seemed like Daniel thought he needed to completely change himself for this girl to like him. Honestly, I would really love to know which podcast she recommended. If it's something in the realm of productivity or spirituality, this could explain a lot. But I wasn't able to find any information about that. I think knowing this information can help us understand the very last text message Daniel sent to this woman. Quote, The world can get better, but I'll have to take all the time I can, or we can, whatever to name it. I'll either see you again or never see you again. End quote. Although I am again not justifying Daniel's behavior because he clearly crossed a line with this woman, I do feel like this could be interpreted in very different ways. Was he trying to be romantic? Does this have to do with that podcast they both listened to? Was he saying he would never see her again? Was he saying maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't? I don't know. This text message is something I've seen brought up a lot, and I do think it could give us clues to Daniel's mindset if we had more context. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure there's enough here to fully understand what Daniel meant by this. But if you do recognize this, if you think it holds a greater meaning, I'd love to know why. So let me know on social media. It's also important to note here that at some point, all of Daniel's posts were deleted off of his Instagram account. I have found some conflicting reports about whether this was before or after he went missing, so I don't know for sure when this occurred, but I think it's worth mentioning. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. At this point, Daniel and his blue Jeep have been missing for almost a month. 
searches of the area and his home come up with nothing. There's no activity on his cell phone or bank accounts since he went missing. He hasn't been captured on any surveillance in the area after leaving the job site. There is no evidence to suggest Daniel went anywhere but the middle of the desert. Daniel's family has hired a private investigator and is still conducting their own searches. The police insist there's no reason to believe foul play is involved, in large part because of the statements Daniel made before going missing. But then, a major discovery is made. Daniel's Jeep is found in a ravine by a local rancher on the morning of July 19th, just a few miles from where he was last seen. Detectives are sent to the scene. In the report, Detective Biffin describes this. He says that Daniel's Jeep was facing northwest and was still in drive. It had a significant amount of damage, and it appears to have had a front impact with the dirt, then rolled before resting on the passenger side. A piece of the removable roof was on the ground, partially wedged under the front of the Jeep. The driver's front window was shattered. There was also a lot of damage to the lower front end and the top of the windshield end roof. All of the interior airbags had been deployed. The outside of the Jeep looked pretty clean, but the detective mentions that there had been at least three large rainstorms in the area since Daniel went missing. The inside of the Jeep did have water damage, and Daniel's hard hat was inside still filled with water. There was no visible blood found in or outside the vehicle. Inside of the Jeep was Daniel's cell phone, which, as suspected, was dead his keys, a backpack containing his laptop and some paperwork, along with miscellaneous things, like clothing, a basketball, and unopened water bottles. By this time, there were no footprints around the Jeep to indicate which way Daniel or whoever might have been driving the Jeep may have gone. However, there is something pretty concerning. A few feet away from the Jeep, the detective notices some clothing. It appears to be the clothing Daniel was wearing on the day he went missing. His t-shirt, two socks, and jeans were all turned inside out, and his work boots were also found on the ground. In the back of Daniel's jeans is his wallet. Now, there's no cash, but we don't know if there's cash in there to begin with, so we can't determine if he was robbed or not. But his ID, debit card, and several other cards are in the wallet. As far as anyone can tell, nothing is missing. The detective notes that it doesn't appear that Daniel spent a considerable amount of time at the Jeep. There were no empty water bottles or other items in the area to make it look like he was maybe just waiting for help to arrive. Ultimately, they aren't able to find any tracks they can for sure call Daniels, and they basically have no idea where he went after the jeep crashed into the ravine. However, they are able to determine that it appears that Daniel, or again, whoever might have been driving the jeep, left the dirt road where it ended at that intersection and went deeper into the desert just like his co-worker had suspected. The jeep then drove up a hillside and over several bushes before it ended up in the ravine. All of this is really terrifying. We don't know if Daniel willingly took off his clothes and walked into the desert, or if he was possibly made to. Either way, we know that he left without his phone, keys, or wallet, which is huge. Since there was other clothing found in the car, we also don't know if maybe he just changed into different clothes and shoes. The Jeep is photographed and the evidence was processed. There were actually no forensics done on the Jeep at this time. No swabs, no fingerprinting, nothing. 
the Jeep is towed back to the police station, and the next day, David is notified that his son's Jeep was found. When David asked why they didn't do any testing, he says the police told him, well, it's Daniel's car. Why would anyone else be driving? Here is David explaining further. I asked how can they be sure that my son was driving the vehicle without doing forensics work. The reply was that it was my son's vehicle. It is obvious he was driving. Now, this is where David's private investigator really starts making some moves in Daniel's case. The following day, the Buckeye PD do download crash data from the Jeep. According to the report, they were only able to see that the Jeep might have been going up to 30 miles per hour for up to five seconds before crashing. Not much to go off of there. However, when the PI asks if he can do his own independent analysis of the crash data and take a look at the Jeep, he finds a lot more. He basically discovers the entire trip log that day through calculating the recorded mileage. This is where a lot of our timeline from before Daniel getting to the crash site comes from. But now, he's able to determine that Daniel's Jeep crashed four hours after he left the job site. So the Jeep has been there the entire time, just a few miles away. He also discovers that there was a transfer of red paint onto Daniel's Jeep, meaning the Jeep made impact with something with red paint. However, investigators have still not been able to discover what that might have been. There was nothing in the immediate area with red paint that would give us an easy answer. The PI also discovers that Daniel's Jeep drove an additional 11 miles after the airbags were deployed, and that someone tried to restart the Jeep over 40 times after the crash. So the detective and the PI clash on these issues. It's all in the report. The PI paints the following scenario. Daniel leaves his job site 15 minutes after arriving. The Jeep makes contact with something causing the airbags to deploy and for the crash system to alert. The person driving the Jeep then drives an additional 11 miles, where they eventually accelerate, possibly attempting to make it up the other side of the ravine before crashing in the ravine. The PI also says this may have been a staged crime scene. The detective isn't so quick to believe this narrative, though. After the PI shares his findings, the detective reports that it's possible the additional miles were made after the Jeep was in the ravine, if someone was stepping on the gas. He also theorizes that the tow truck driver could have put the additional miles on the vehicle, or was maybe even the one to try to start the Jeep over 40 times. To be honest, this is really out of my realm of expertise. But according to Daniel's family, it's not for the PI Jeff McGrath. Not only is he ex-law enforcement, he's actually an expert in accident reconstruction. So you have law enforcement against law enforcement. I don't know who to believe. But I do think we have enough evidence to conclude that the Buckeye Police Department doesn't seem to be willing to entertain any idea other than Daniel was sad, acting weird, and most likely left on his own accord. So there's that to consider here. The Buckeye police have and continue to push that narrative. On July 22nd, the Buckeye police do finally take swabs of the Jeep, but only really on the driver's side. Wet and dry swabs were taken from the inside of the driver's door, the steering wheel, the gear shifter, the push-start button, the rear-view mirror, and the driver's seatbelt. 
The results from this testing and any other independent testing from the PI have not yet been released. So I don't know if any other DNA was found. One of the biggest things Daniel's family is trying to accomplish is upgrading this case from just a missing person to an endangered missing person or a criminal investigation. They are pushing hard for this. When David asks why this can't happen, the police offer him two theories that they believe may explain Daniel's disappearance. One, he may have suffered a head injury causing him to strip off his clothing and walk into the desert where he died of exposure. Or two, Daniel purposely left his life to join a monastery and become a monk. I think this is where they think Daniel's odd behavior comes into play. But I think that this is a stretch if I've ever heard one. This is where, in my opinion, the emphasis on Daniel's behavior begins to hinder his own case. In every single interview with his friends and family, they have explicitly stated over and over again that Daniel has never mentioned hurting himself or leaving his life. They all said that he was saying some weird things and he was sad. But come on, doesn't that happen to most people who go through something like a breakup? Again, I fully don't believe that this woman and Daniel were in a relationship, and I'm not justifying his behavior of showing up at her home without permission. It's not okay, end of story. But I think it's very possible that Daniel was feeling the very real emotions that come with a breakup anyway. He seemed to pick up some new ideas and concepts that he'd never spoken about before, and he was focusing on changing himself. Again, that seems incredibly normal after someone breaks up with you. It's natural to be sad. It's natural to look at yourself and want to find ways to improve after you've been rejected. I see nothing in Daniel's behavior to completely, 100% rule out the possibility that he could have been met with foul play of some kind. Whether that was him maybe getting into a road rage situation meeting a rancher or a stranger out there in the desert who ended up hurting him. Maybe Daniel hit some type of red barrel on someone's property leading to a chase and the crash. The possibilities for what happened to Daniel feel endless. So why the Buckeye PD refuses to entertain any other idea than he left on his own accord honestly kind of blows my mind. In one statement released to the media, the police say, quote, the Buckeye Police Department has received multiple requests from citizens who wish to help. If any members of the community intend to organize a search, please prepare accordingly for the extreme heat and challenging terrain. While the support from the community is always appreciated, at this time, we are not asking the public to search the desert area, but to be alert for Daniel if you are in the area. End quote. So, people wanted to search, and they said that they weren't asking for that. Now, I get telling people to be cautious because the desert can be very dangerous, even for skilled searchers, or, you know, someone like Daniel Robinson. I'm sorry, I really try to refrain from speaking like this when I can, but I just can't with this one. When attempting to gain records, the detective said that he believes Daniel could be in danger. They believe the public could also be in danger out in the same environment. Yet the only narrative the Buckeye PD is talking about is that Daniel probably left on his own accord, and they've stated explicitly to the media that they have, quote, covered all of their bases, end quote, in this investigation. So after Daniel's Jeep was found, the Buckeye Police Department did conduct a search of the area, but they didn't find Daniel. 
the police have essentially stopped conducting searches, having done a total of three searches in three months. But Daniel's family continues on, having done nine searches of their own in those same three months. And those searches are continuing every single Saturday as of recording this episode. And thank goodness they are, because on July 31st, 2021, David's search team found something huge, a human skull. And they found it pretty close to where Daniel's Jeep was. Now, I'm not going to keep you waiting. This wasn't Daniel's skull. But it's someone's, and authorities are now trying to determine who it belongs to. Now, up to this point, Daniel's case had received some media coverage. But it wasn't until David was invited on several national television programs to discuss Daniel's case in light of the Gabby Petito case that it reached this next level of exposure. David spoke with MSNBC, CBS, and the case was featured on News Nation Now's Missing in America series. It was like Daniel's case was everywhere, which is amazing. It also gave David a more equal platform to discuss his beliefs about how the Buckeye Police Department has handled the case, and to advocate for it to be taken more seriously. When David is asked why he thinks something bad could have happened to Daniel, David's like, listen, almost anything could have happened out there. I don't know what happened. Uh, sir, that, that is hard to say. I've been uh, going over this thing over my mind. I talked to his mother. Uh, I talked to his siblings, uh, family. We all are confused uh, to what happened to my son. But one thing I do know, uh, my son loved his family. Uh, he would not go anywhere without telling us. Um, he would not um, have a desire to be away from his family. Uh, he would not go out into the desert. He would not try to join a monastery, which has uh, been told by the Buckeye Police Department. And, and, and my son... Uh, mysteriously disappeared. That's all we do know. Despite this case still being pretty new, David also advocates for other cases. He says he didn't really realize how much of an issue missing persons cases really are until he began doing independent searches for Daniel. He began talking to some of the people showing up to the searches, who told him their stories of having a missing loved one, and that's when he realized that we have a serious problem. Another really incredible thing came out of those searches. In addition to the human skull, they found more remains. Here is David elaborating a bit more on this and how he's disappointed with the Buckeye PD in an interview he did with CNN. No, I do, don't think they did enough. Um, you know, the first 24 hours to me is the first crucial, the first 48, 24 to 40 hours, the first crucial moments. And um, those moments wasn't fulfilled. It seems like all of the key discoveries were made by you, a private investigator, and friends who wanted to look. Is it true that your group, let's say, have found the remains of five or maybe six people in your search for your son, but none of them were him? Yes. Um, well, we had uh, seven searches, uh, seven weeks of searches. Um, I created a search um, full of volunteers. Uh, who worked vigorously out in the desert, recovered a lot of ground around the last places, uh, last spot that my son was seen, which is the well site. Uh, then when the vehicle showed up, uh, we also covered those areas. Um, and in, in those searches, yes, we recovered uh, what appeared to be human remains. Uh, we documented them, picture, take pictures, and turn all of those over to the Buckeye Police Department, including uh, a skull that was found. 
On November 6, 2021, literally just the week before this episode will be published, David and his search team found more remains. These don't appear to belong to Daniel due to a number of factors, but again, there's some ones. There have also been some alleged sightings of Daniel in Arizona and California, but none have been confirmed. This is, unfortunately, where the case is today. The police have explicitly stated that they believe that they have covered all of their bases with Daniel's case. They did the searches, they looked at the Jeep and the crash scene, and they're adamant that there's no reason to believe that Daniel was met with foul play. Obviously, I feel for Daniel's family. I've never seen such a lack of urgency for a person in a situation like this. From day two of this investigation, they had good reason to believe that Daniel went into the desert and didn't come back out. It just doesn't make any sense to me. There are still so many unanswered questions and possibilities. Was Daniel driving the Jeep? Was he a passenger? Why did he take his clothes off? Did he take them off or did someone take them off of him? Did he just meet the wrong person at the wrong time who harmed him? Was he trying to find himself in the desert and encountered that mountain lion the police saw? Maybe a rattlesnake? And what about that podcast? Could that explain some of these more odd statements people were reporting? What about that unknown trip earlier in the morning? A huge question I have that I think still needs to be investigated is what about the red paint transfer on Daniel's Jeep? What did he hit? Or what hit him? I think finding that out could be huge for this case. Luckily, David's search efforts for Daniel have grown from 80 volunteers to over 200 each week. They have also raised over $150,000 at this point. It is just incredible what Daniel's family has accomplished in this case. But at the end of the day, Daniel is still missing, and he still needs our help. He's out there somewhere, and there's still a lot of work to be done. That brings me right to our call to action. There are honestly so many ways to help Daniel's case. I mentioned the GoFundMe, and the family also has a petition. All of that will be linked in the episode description on my website. Also, if you are in the Buckeye area and have any resources like ATVs, 4x4s, or any particularly helpful skills, please check out the family's website, pleasehelpfinddaniel.com, to see how you might be able to physically search for Daniel. And as always, please share his story. I can never say this enough, media attention moves mountains in these cases. Daniel Robinson is a 24-year-old black male. He is 5 foot 8 inches tall and weighs approximately 165 pounds. He has black hair and brown eyes. He is missing part of his right forearm, including his hand. If you have any information about Daniel, please call the Buckeye PD at 623-349-6499. Or you can reach out directly to his family at pleasehelpfinddaniel.com. But as always... Thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. 